This episode is sponsored by Jason's upcoming 300-hour teacher training. If you'd like to become a 500-hour registered yoga teacher with Yoga Alliance and you'd like to do it online and on your own schedule, this training is an excellent choice. The training is split into three different modules, and module one begins May 10th, so there's still plenty of time to find out more about the training and register. You can learn more at learn.jasonyoga.com slash 300. Also, many of you have asked when we are going to launch the anatomy training. I promise it's coming soon. It's going to be phenomenal. And Jason's just putting the finishing touches on. If you'd like to learn when that training goes on sale and all of the details, go to learn.jasonyoga.com slash anatomy, and you can join the waitlist there. Hey, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti. Welcome to Yogaland. Hi there, Jason. Hi there, Andrea. You're back. I'm back. We're back. We're back. I've been here doing the Teacher's Companions. (laughs) Where have you been? You're back. I have been at Death's Door. You have been. (laughs) Which you all might notice my voice is a little, still a little, I'm a little congested. But I feel like a million dollars because even though I've been sick for a month, partly with a cold, a sinus infection, we finally got COVID. I also, the good, the silver lining in all of it is that I found an amazing acupuncture place down here. And acupuncture is my lifeblood when I am under the weather. So I found like my nice crunchy place with the crystals and <laughs> the moxa and the cupping and the reiki. I am literally, I feel better than I have felt in a very long time. Good. Yes. Good, good, good. Yes. So I'm excited to be here and talk about this. And this is a topic that you came came up with that I love, which is we are going to talk about the changes that we've seen in yoga over the past several decades, because that's how much we have under our belt, and the changes that we appreciate, and the changes that we are not so fond of. And, and we kind of wanted to start out this conversation by saying, these are our personal opinions, and not those of the, I don't know, greater yoga milieu that exists out there. These are just our opinions and our experiences. As I've become a little bit more mature in my understanding of self, I have learned not to speak about yoga in abstractions anymore, Mm. right? Or the yoga community or this or that, right? It's really about my direct experience. That's what I feel that I'm an expert on. And that's what we want to limit our conversation to, right? Now, generally speaking, when we talk about ourselves and the things that the changes that we've experienced that we love and things that we don't love quite as much, of course it's gonna it's gonna branch into some certain generalities. But this really is about our direct preferences and the opposite of those preferences, I suppose. Yeah. I want to just say, um, do a quick plug. Actually, um, I was a guest on a podcast this week. You've been a guest on her podcast as well. Her name is Kim Weeks, and she has a podcast called Practicing Well. And I had a, a, such a great conversation with her. And I was shocked that when she did the intro and the right and the promotion for this episode, I'll link to it in the show notes, she called me, you're going to laugh, she called me a futurist. A futurist? She said, I am on the cutting edge, which I just thought was so funny. I think her I, her thought behind that is just, in terms of media, I have yes, always kind I of totally agree. wanted to do, you know, I, I, I do appreciate and, and have always been drawn to new kinds of media. So I think that's what she was talking about. But another thing that we got to talk about in the conversation was just how I started yoga in the 90s and what it was like working for Yoga Journal at that time. And one of the things I said is that it's really easy to kind of look back at yoga now and be really judgy about the way that it was when sure. it, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when it was kind of really coming into popularity here. But she allowed me in this interview to to look back really fondly. And so I appreciated that. And that's a little bit of what we're going to we're going to kind of straddle that today. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you start? Would you do me a favor first? Do you have that quote from Andrea Jane? Oh, I do. So, so let, me, let me set this up while you find it. So I think one of the caveats or kind of general caveats or big kind of context to throw out, before we talk about 
you know, our preferences and lack of preferences, I want to make it really clear that things change. Like we know this, but things change. And yoga has always evolved. It's always been heterogeneous. It's never been some single golden era of unified thought and belief across communities. It just has never been that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important so that as we have this conversation, we don't unconsciously pit it against some mythical time in which everything was pure and divine and agreed upon. Because that is a magical thinking that's beyond the pale. And it just has no historical accuracy. And it's, I think it's really important that, that we say that. The other thing is, and I feel like I've mentioned this before, and I'll, I'll be brief about this, but I have this general sense that every generation thinks the next generation is problematic in some way. Yeah. You know what I mean? There mm -hmm. just does seem to be within us a wanting of the way things were, right? And so and so we'll, we will do our best to not get stuck in that idea of, oh, 22 years ago, because classes were longer, everything was therefore better, mm -hmm. right? This is just a you little I, bit- You and I are far too cynical to think there was ever a golden era, a perfectionate golden era of anything in well, humanity. There, there, <laughs> Wasn't. I know. I agree. Do you know why? Because I know people. Yeah. You, we only have to know ourselves for about five minutes to disabuse ourselves of that notion. And I mean that with optimism and loving kindness. <laughs> Go ahead and read that, and okay. then and then we will move forward. So Andrea Jane is a, a religious studies professor, and she's the author of several books. And this quote comes from her book, Selling Yoga from Counterculture to Pop Culture, which I'll also link to in the show notes. And the quote is, I emphasize pre-modern yoga's context, sensitivity, heterogeneity, and malleability rather than any central quality or essence presumed by some to be present across all systems. And then, you know, so, so she's basically saying yoga has always been malleable and responsive to the context in which it exists. And that's why it has continued to exist. Mm -hmm. And that's why we don't, and I've said it in so many other contexts, this is why we are not at the museum looking at yoga. Right. We, we are continuing to practice yoga in part because it has an adaptive ability to change. Right. It's and pretty amazing. To, and for us to maintain our engagement with it. Mm -hmm. So coming in at number one. <laughs> and this is things that we appreciate that have changed over the years. Yes. That we've noticed. Yeah. Um, so- I think this one really stands out to both of us, but especially me, I think, as a teacher, which is there has been ongoing technical improvements and innovation since I first stepped on the yoga mat. And one thing I want to clarify is I spent over a decade in an extremely technical style of yoga, right? I spent over a decade studying Iyengar yoga. So I have a deep background in, in pretty refined nuanced, arguably arcane technique. So it's not like, oh, now we're doing things more technically sound and we didn't used to be doing things technically sound. What I really mean by this is, you know, I'll, I'll state two specific examples. I have seen in the course of 25 years, but especially the last five, a significant improvement in our understanding of the value of strength and about engaging in postures in such a way that the stress of that posture is distributed across more joints and a larger surface area. So another way of thinking about this is the technical improvements that I have seen the community make are largely with regards to the ability to not overly concentrate stresses in and around specific locations and in order to build greater strength throughout the whole body in postures. Mm -hmm. I mean, just quite simply, another way of thinking about this, or one of the examples is, we have really started to see the utility of strength in flexibility, not just flexibility. Mm -hmm. so, so students, not just learning to be strong and flexible, but learning to be strong in their flexibility. So focusing on developing eccentric length and then also 
technical improvements where we tend to be focusing more on end range strength or isometric strength in lengthened positions. I mean, this is kind of like nuanced terms, but we're getting a greater understanding of how to be strong in our flexibility. I think the other big example to me that comes up is our understanding of the value of active range of motion instead of just passive range of motion. And I can tell people the word active range of motion was not mentioned once. Like even the concept didn't really present itself in over a thousand hours of training that I did 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't that that training lacked depth no. and scrutiny in any of these. It was, of course not. It's that over time, we tend to learn from doing what we've done. And there's been more cross-pollination of yoga with other movement modalities and sports medicine. And I think that those improved techniques are really pretty exceptional, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And PT, right? And I mean, PT. I think there are a lot of yoga teacher PTs out there now. Yeah. And I remember when I used to go to PT for, um, I had just a repetitive stress injury that got pretty bad from typing all day when I was at Yoga Journal. And she was a yoga teacher and a Pilates teacher and a PT. And she used to say, we ask people to do too much too fast in yoga. Like we ask people to do too much too fast. I need you to just get in cat cow. And she would basically have me do bird dogs, which now is really standard. Like these are really standard things we do in yoga class. But at that time it was like, this is so easy, but yet so hard. So I think along these lines, I don't totally mean to make this as a tongue in cheek joke, but maybe it is. There's been enough of us that have practiced yoga long enough to injure ourselves enough and frequently enough to realize that some of the techniques that we were using maybe weren't very good, mm-hmm. right? Or or that we were doing too much of the same things without doing enough of the opposite of those things. Right. And your example of repetitive stress, I think, is really common. I think You know, even just the hamstrings, for example, the amount of time in general that we used to just kind of passively stretch the hamstrings in comparison to actively strengthening the hamstrings, I think is pretty profound. It's astounding. It's literally astounding, right? It's astounding. And it's one of these things of yoga never hurt me. Yoga doesn't hurt people, but I hurt myself doing yoga because- even though I had a lot of technical insights, it still wasn't that balanced. Yeah. Right? And so now I think we have greater access to more refined, technically astute and accurate teachings. Like we've learned from some of our generational mistakes. Sure. Hopefully. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to talking about changes in manual adjustments and consent. Yes. And that this is a, we've moved in a positive direction. Totally. So let's start with consent. I will just say, I remember the first time, and this, this was in my, this was in 2000 during a training. And I remember hearing that Judith Lassiter used to ask her students before she gave a manual adjustment, if she could touch them. And I just remember thinking it was so absurd. It was. It felt very awkward it at felt, first. Yeah, 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 yeah. At first, yeah. I'm not criticizing Judith, by the way. We're we're going the other direction. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so my point on this is like, you know, I just had no idea because I I've always known in manual adjustments what my intentions were, but what I didn't really understand, what took me a couple of decades to really understand, is intentions can very easily be misread and. Similarly, the person that I'm giving a manual adjustment to isn't a blank slate, that they may have trauma, they may have any number of reasons for someone they do not know to just come touch them in a public class. Yeah. And, And the reality is I just didn't know that. Like I didn't really get that. And I feel like the way that I have approached manual adjustments even 20 years ago was appropriate, but not everything that's appropriate is appreciated or necessary or... I think necessary is the key word. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll add to that, if that's okay. Of course. 
and just say, I started out in Ashtanga yoga training in, in a in a, in a Mysore setting where hands-on adjustments were par- is, is just part and parcel of the, the practice. And I was a dancer and I loved being in my body and I had all female teachers. And so all of the adjustments were perfectly aligned with the style. And yet, and, and I, I appreciated them because I felt like they, they led me to places that I couldn't have necessarily felt on my own. And yet... I look back and I think I didn't even have the knowledge to know that sometimes my boundaries were being crossed. Sometimes I would submit to a little bit of pain because I didn't want to make the teacher uncomfortable. Sometimes I would walk out of class in pain because I didn't want to make the teacher uncomfortable. And I just thought it was part and parcel of the training, which and it's similar to dance, right? It's like the no pain, no gain attitude. And so... I agree with you. Like, I, I'm just so appreciative of, of the fact that we are now much more attuned to the fact that many people endure a physical trauma in their lives, and and it's not appropriate to touch them, and it's also not appropriate to put them on the spot in front of other people, and, and necessarily even ask if they can be touched because they might not feel comfortable with that. And you know, appreciate the idea that there are just other ways to make people feel safe and and in their bodies. And so the thing that's really common now and that I appreciate are the consent chips, yes. right? So, yeah, that's kind of what I was leading to, yeah. right? Is there, there, whether it is the can I touch you question or whether it's a consent chip or whether it's another means, it's becoming much more standard to have a clear discretionary ability to opt out without it being a scene, without it being a controversy, without it being some some complicated ado. I think at some point, you know, hopefully we'll get to the place where people are not opting out, but where people are opting in, mm-hmm. right? Where the default is, I'm not, I'm not going to put my hands on you. Like, yeah. right? It's almost never necessary. And, and, and listeners might be thinking, but it can be feel really good. I, I, this isn't a categorical, you know, castigation of manual adjustments. They they have their time, they have their place, they have their value. But in general, everyone of a certain generation that went to class could expect not only were there going to be hands on them, but those hands were going to be heavy and firm. Yes. I mean, it was just, and in some places, unfortunately, it still is. But man, I tell you, the general culture of really taking a step back from just blasting people into Marichasana D or whatever it is, it's a really good step back. And we've made really massive improvements with our understanding that the student needs a way to opt in or opt out, Mm -hmm. period. So thank you, Judith, for being the pioneer in that. Big time. Because for us, she really, really was. And now it's it's much more accepted as the norm. And I, really quick too, I just want to say, this is one of the reminders where, you know, I have my reactions, I have my feelings, I have my opinions, but I have to be open to allowing them to change. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. I, and I just, again, like I just really thought it was such a silly notion. Mm-hmm. Like we're making a big deal out of something that wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's what we thought. That's what we thought. And, and we thought and, wrong. And we thought wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Number three on our list of things we really love. Now, th- I think when we talk about things we do not love, we're going to talk a little bit in a way about some of the shadow side of this. Right. Right. But this, I think this third point is really key. Um, which is there is much greater accessibility and much more innovation in how this practice is delivered. Like, and, and I can say it another way, which is there are more people that have more access to practicing yoga. There are more people that have more styles to practice to suit their individual needs. There are more locations in which people can access these teachings. It is literally shocking to me how many hundreds of thousands of hours of free content there is on YouTube Mm -hmm. to practice yoga, Mm -hmm. to learn about yoga. 
people are listening to this at no cost, mm-hmm. right? And this is informative, right? Right? It's valuable, or at least at we, least we, we like to think. We so. hope so. Yeah. yeah. But but so like literally, even just us, we have thousands of hours mm-hmm. of free content mm-hmm. that so long as someone can make it to a library, they can access this for free. Mm-hmm. And that isn't to say like we we can't continue to improve access, inclusivity, and all these things. But in terms of what we have experienced in 25 years of yoga, yoga is more everywhere and more diversified than it has ever been. Mm -hmm. If you want to practice yoga these days, there isn't much stopping you. Right, right, right. You might not be able to make it to a class. You might not be able to afford a class. You might not be able to make it to a training. You might not be able to afford a teacher training. And... If you want to do a good free class on YouTube, it's there. Yeah, yeah. Sharon Sharon Salzberg, who's a meditation teacher, talks about this, that she has had a goal, you know, for a long time to have high-quality mindfulness teachings available to all. And, you know, media, new media has allowed that to happen. And again— we will talk about the the shadow side of there this. There are shadow sides. In part in the second half of this Not podcast. to the inclusivity part, no, but to the... No, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Okay. So the next thing we wanted to talk about is less that there's now, hopefully, less claim making and more demystification of some of the esoteric practices. So do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So there's still a lot of mystification and there's still a lot of claim making, for sure. But what, one of the things that we see all the time now is in social media posts about listening to your body, not abdicating to authority. Hey, listen, guess what? Twists don't actually detoxify. Guess what? Even though it says so in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, doing Supta Virasana does not ward off all death and disease and make you immortal. There's just much more, I think, in the modern era, willingness to kind of take a step back with critical thinking and say, hey, yoga's really, really awesome, but maybe shoulder stand doesn't actually prevent thyroid cancer, and maybe we shouldn't say that it does. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I think that when, when more people have more access to publishing their voice online. There's going to be some downsides to it. But the upsides is there's going to be a little bit more, I think, of a kind of a democratization of knowledge and pushback. Mm. And so I feel like there's a little bit less, there's a little bit less just listening to what the teacher says and assuming that it's correct and that it's valid and right without questioning it, mm-hmm. right? And I'm a yoga teacher, I, but I'm highly, I'm much more invested in people's critical thinking skills than I am in people just like believing what I tell them, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that this, the kind of, the evolution of yoga, it's just a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more, more willing not to criticize the teacher, Mm-mm. but not to just say, well, that's what Guruji says, right? And, and literally, I, I, I cannot, I can't tell the audience how many times over the decades I've heard the answer to the question is, well, that's because that's what Guruji said. And that just, that for most people in the modern era, like that actually is not an acceptable answer. And for me personally, I don't think it should be. I think that's an that's an inroad to all sorts of potential abuse. It is, yeah. You know, and it has been. Mm-hmm. But bottom line, I think with greater access to information, we have more ability to have critical thinking skills and take a step back from some of the the claims that that we've been part of. That used to just be kind of every day. I mean, it's really interesting. Yes. As you were talking about this, I was thinking about Gary Kraftsau and how one of the things, things I appreciated about him early on, I would, anytime there was a conference, I would always go to Gary's Same. classes. Same. He's just, I can't believe I actually haven't had him on the podcast. I think because I'm a little intimidated. But 
he's very much like a Yana yogi. He's very much an intellectual. And he used to just always say, this is what I teach. You take it into your own personal lab and experiment with it. And you decide if it works. And this is very much your approach as well, very much Stephen Cope's approach as well. And so it's almost like if you think about Krishnamacharya and, you know, the three people who he taught who ended up really influencing Western yoga, Patabi Joyce, BKS Iyengar, TKB Desikachar. Desikachar was the third one, and Desikachar was, was Gary Kraftshaus' teacher. And that lineage was much more like, you take this information, you experiment with it, it's your experience that matters. You you leave what you don't what doesn't work, and you keep what works. And so it's just interesting to think that that may have been an evolution of Krishnamacharya's as well. Yeah, it's a more liberal mindset. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that in terms of voting. I mean no. that in terms of how we understand authority and what is true. Right. And so he was older, right, when he taught Desikachar, and he may have just been more comfortable ego wise with allowing it to be more individualized. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where you and I fall on that spectrum. So last two, I, I kind of said this earlier, but one of the things that I think is really great is we just have more, there's more diversity and styles of yoga to choose from these days. Does that have a shadow side? Yes. It can be really overwhelming to figure out what's what and what works for different people. And mm-hmm. you know, I think we have a, a pretty significant authority crisis or not a not authority crisis i think we have a more of like and, and look, look, we'll wait on that one okay um, but i think it's really good that people have a lot of different kinds of practices mm-hmm. that they can draw from i mean when i was 25 plus years ago it was either iyengar yoga or ashtanga yoga or shivananda yoga yep I mean, in San Francisco, that was it. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are all really wonderful things. I'm not, none of those are being thrown under the bus, but those are specific enough schools of yoga that, and they have specific, or at least in those days, they had specific enough, I would say not only sequencing protocols, but personalities and tones and attitudes that they worked really well for some and not for others. Mm -hmm. And as a yoga teacher, I just want people to practice. I want them to find something that works with their body and their temperaments and their worldview and having more choices, although it can be overwhelming, ultimately helps serve more people. Mm -hmm. I think it would be very difficult to argue that fewer people these days are being served by yoga. Oh yeah, that would be that would be an impossible. That would be an, well, anyone can make the argument, but it'd be a, it'd be you'd lose. So there are more people that have more access, in part because there are more ways to interface with this practice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's not unlike finding a therapist these days, right? Everyone always says to you if you're if you need to go to therapy, like if the first one doesn't work out. Just try another one because everybody has, even if they have the same training, went to the same school, the same continuing education credits, each therapist is different. And the way they hold the space is going to be different for you. And the way that they verbally communicate and the way that they energetically communicate. And it's it's, it's like that in the yoga room now too. You can't just look, like the downside is you can't just look at a description and know this is exactly what I'm going to get. But the upside is that there's just so many more nuanced approaches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think finally, in a, in a way we've touched on this, but I think to me and to you, yoga is a more natural and immediate and accessible part of daily life mm-hmm. than it ever has been. So so let me let me kind of paint a picture, okay? So I'll paint the picture of 1990s San Francisco. Okay. If I wanted what I deemed to be an exceptional yoga class, it was going to take many hours because I needed to take at least an hour to get to the East Bay. I had to be 30 minutes early for class to get in. That class was 90 minutes and it took an hour to come back. Okay. Minimum. So for me to take a class, like a good yoga class, even though I lived in San Francisco, California, 
That was a four or a five hour. Because you were commitment. walking across the Bay Bridge, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took me an hour. It did. No, I know, but it's just I'm just imagining you with your yoga no, mat. No, I in your lived backpack. in the Upper Hate, man. I had to take the Hate bus, then I had to take Bart, then <laughs> I had to walk 25 you. minutes. Oh my goodness! So, but point, yeah, this is this is. Oh my god, this is totally a when I was your age. <laughs> no, but 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 there were other classes, but there weren't that many studios. There weren't that many studios in San Francisco in the '90s, so and there was no there were there was no yoga at gyms. There was no yoga online. There wasn't YouTube. There weren't podcasts. You either went to a studio that probably wasn't very close to you, and class was epically long, or you like did a sequence from Light on Yoga. Like mm-hmm. that was it. Yeah. That's okay. True. And so the ability to like to really immerse yourself in it 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 was a lot harder yeah for now if i want to if i want like a good class on glow with dice that's 20 minutes i can take that now right right i can get that inspiration if i want to learn from a podcast if i want to study with me of course online whatever it is like we just have so much more normalized access to teachings. Right. Yeah. I would add to that. It's, it's, it's like, I notice as my practice has gone on over the years that it's just more ingrained throughout my day. So I can remember early on at Yoga Journal doing a story about, um, and I was not the editor of the story, but a story about yoga in India. And it was really just, it was someone who traveled there to, to try to do this story. And obviously India is gigantic. So we all felt like it wasn't the perfect story because we were hard on ourselves. But but one of the things that they captured that stood out to me was this, that when the journalist spoke to the families that she spoke to, they said, it's just a natural part of our day and a natural part of our life. Like the mother said, I might get up and do a puja and light a candle, and then I might do a few sun salutations, and then I have to get my kids ready for school. And I, I don't want to put myself in the position of comparing myself to anyone sure. from India, but but just in terms of this idea that I don't feel, I used to feel very much like if I didn't go to a 90 minute class, I felt guilty. I wasn't really doing yoga. If I didn't go to three to four classes a week, I felt guilty. I wasn't really doing yoga. And perhaps it's just a result of being more efficient uh, with my time right now that I'm older and a mother. But I, I think it's more than that. I think it's that we're just surrounded by the ideas and we've brought them into our lives and we feel less less guilty about combining things. Like right now, I'm doing this book club on Substack with the work of Jill Miller, who does a lot of breath work and rolling on balls and myofascial release. And so if that's my practice for the day, I still feel like I did a practice. If my practice is talking to my daughter and trying to get her to breathe deeply and integrate some of this into her life, that's my practice. If I'm the way that we talk to her about life and processing emotions and regulating ourselves, that's our practice now. And so I think that's just a nice benefit to having a long term practice. Yes. Yeah. So now let's shift conversation. And let's talk about some of the shadow sides or some of the things that we've just seen in our own personal experience of practicing over 25 plus years and talk about some of the things that that we don't prefer, some of the things that I, I feel like are slipping away or diminishing or some of the things we're, we're kind of losing or some of the things that we're, we're missing or some of the changes that maybe we don't quite appreciate as much. We're concerned about, yeah. perhaps. All right, I'm going to start. I... Yeah, you brought this one up immediately, <laughs> actually, which I think is really actually important. Yeah. I just notice less emphasis on Shavasana, and this has deteriorated over decades, right? Shavasana used to be 15 minutes. You used to like go over to the corner, get your blankets, get your eye bag if you want it, get your blocks. Like you used to make fun of me at Yoga Journal because I was fully supported, covered the whole thing because I took it seriously. I knew that I needed that restful, supported time and place for my nervous system. And it so the time of Shavasana has gotten shorter and shorter for each class. And 
obviously people from the beginning of time have gotten up in the middle of Shavasana and left, right? And you can't, as a teacher, you, you can only do so much about that in terms of asking people to stay. But now what I notice is that it is like less common for people to stay during a five-minute Shavasana than it is for them to leave. In addition, I notice teachers leaving the room during Shavasana because they want to give people the option of leaving and not feeling bad about that. Well, it's either that or they want to go check I'm their phone. I'm going to assume the best. Well, okay. I'm going to ass- I really am. I'm okay, going to assume enough, the best. And it's it's really problematic. It's also very difficult to hold space for Shavasana online. I notice with myself when I'm doing an online class, if the teacher says, you can stay for five more minutes or you can stay for two more minutes, I'm like, whoop, I'm up, I'm gone, yes. I'm rolling up my mat. So when you say less emphasis on Shavasana, my first wor- the first word that comes to mind is guilty. You know, like I'm a yoga yeah. teacher and and the primary environment in which I teach now or currently is online via Glow and my trainings. My trainings have really long shavasanas and yoga nidra and breathing and meditation, all these things. But in terms of my drop-in classes via Glow, man, I often don't even include shavasana. And there's a couple of reasons for it, but I'm not proud of it. Like I don't, I, I never, it's, it's very rare that I look at myself as a teacher and think, oh yeah, that was perfect. Everything about that was perfect. And one of the things that, that frequently feels a little bit undeveloped is Shavasana. And a big part of the reason is because the duration of class is shorter, but I could still say, okay, well, let's keep Shavasana in ratio to the duration of class, which is probably technically what I should do. But I happen to know from data that most people don't do it. Most people, yeah, online. Online. I, I don't know that and there's a I, fix to online. And I, as a student taking online classes, don't like Shavasana. No. I don't. I, I really only have ever liked Shavasana in studio. So let's unpack this. It makes sense, right? If we think about human humans and co-regulation, we know about co-regulation now, which is that we feed off of each other's mirror neurons, we feed off of each other's energy, and we help each other to stay regulated. If one person stays regulated, it helps another person. So if we, I, I don't know that there is a solution to online shavasana, and that just might be, okay, that's okay. We can't, you know, there are just certain changes that... But... In person, guys, I beseech you, yoga teachers, I beseech you, your students need this. They need not only to have the experience of Shavasana, they need to learn how to sit and lay and be with themselves in a quiet space. And when they are surrounded by other people, it will be easier. So if you are doing a three-minute Shavasana, you lie to your students and you tell them this is the same Shavasana as always, and you add one minute. If you're doing a five-minute Shavasana, (laughs) you you don't have to lie. I'm just saying like people are so concerned about their students' expectations and about keeping them entertained and about keeping them in their workout. Adding a minute, adding 30 seconds, your students are not going to notice. You don't have a big to make a big announcement. You are their teacher. I beseech you. I will also say, I am on a soapbox right you, now. You are on a soapbox. I will also say, I mean, this is because when Kim Weeks and I were talking on the podcast, she said, what was it that hooked you on yoga? And I can lit, in one minute, no one's asked me this question in years. What I remember is when I went to my first Mysore Ashtanga class, it was the Shavasana. Yeah. It was the Shavasana because it was something I had never experienced before as being so calm and content in my body. So Shavasana is important. I'll I get mean, off my soapbox. Let, let's stay on your soapbox, but let's let's kind of drift it into the the kind of let's let's drift it into the next category because it's related. Okay. So I was saying earlier that I think one of the big upsides is it's really easy to find yoga more or less everywhere. And another one of the upsides is that yoga has proliferated and in, in, in ways benefited from its technical overlap with other movement modalities. Like 
other movement modalities have learned from yoga, but yoga's also learned from other movement modalities, okay? So, but there's a downside, which is kind of what we call the exercisification of yoga. Now, posture has always had some sort of physical set of goals. They used to be esoteric, and they're a little less esoteric now, but Posture has always had some sort of. It's always been out. It's in the. You're in the body. I'll put it this way: posture has always had some sort of specific material gain associated with it. Always, okay. Um, but I think the exerciseification of yoga, where it kind of often feels like just another fitness class, and one of the things that we are talking about along this is in the exercisification and kind of fitnessification, by the way, I like exercise and fitness, but in that process, the the more open-ended process of self-inquiry and yoga as a medium towards self-knowledge as opposed to simply yoga as a medium towards a greater physical outcome Mm -hmm. is being... Like that's become more of the norm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's more fitnessy. It's more about mechanical postural gains, and this practice is experienced less consistently as a means of deep introspection and curiosity, right? Right, and and towards these ends, you are incensed <laughs> that even in Southern California, you have a really hard time finding a not heated yoga studio. Yeah, I do. It's, 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 as, so you're right. You're going, I'm going to go from one soapbox to another, which is that, you know, Chelsea and I call each other all the time. Okay, let's go try this class. And then she says, Oh God, no, it's so hot. It's so hot in that studio. I can't do it. And the funny thing is, I will tell you both of the teachers that I've talked to. So I went to one class and I literally thought I was going to go up in flames I was and and I am a menopausal woman, so I have that. And 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 let me. I said this to you earlier. There are a lot of menopausal women doing yoga right now in this day and age. So can you please think about us and that we do not need to be adding to our temperature changes. We have what plenty about- of agni. So let me just say, I spoke to a teacher after I went to a teacher's class. So I I loved her class. I almost died. The rest of the day, I felt sick the rest of the day from the heat. So I said to her, is there any chance of turning down the heat? And she said, I wish they won't let me turn it down. Here's where you can go in the room. And fortunately, I was able to go back to the room and I could stand right in the corner and it's not as hot. But both teachers I've asked about the heat have said, I'm not allowed to turn it down. And they look, they look sideways, like they don't, they don't want anyone to hear them say that. So I, I know that this is a reason that studio owners are trying to it's a way for them to get people into class, right? Because you can say it's you're going to sweat, it's it's you're going to get a workout, it's going to be hot, but there's no overt benefit to it aside from as you're saying this idea that you're exercising harder. It feels like you've done something. Yeah. Right? I think there are I think there is some value to we won't get into the 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 pros and cons of it, but I think I think more to your point is the proportion of heated studios and the drive towards a fitnessy exercisey experience is substantial in outweighing the you know the yes yep yeah put yeah. it that way so so i was another thing i was saying earlier that i appreciate is it's really easy to incorporate yoga in daily life and you gave the example of the woman in india that did a couple of sun salutations in the morning and puja and so forth. So I really like that that we can practice shorter format classes delivered in person and online. But the thing I do not like is that everything is always shorter. Super short. Everything is super short now. Super short. I like the shorter options, but it as an option. And I'll say again, as someone that teaches on Glow, I have... I have recorded one, maybe two 90-minute classes in the last two years. And a 90-minute class isn't even long. Like, it's, it was the standard 
right. duration of class, yeah. right? It's a standard duration of class. Now, physically, do I think that there is a greater upside to a 90-minute class than a 60-minute class? No. Do I think drinking like 20 cups of water is better for you than drinking 12 cups of water in a day? No. It's probably mechanically diminishing returns to have a longer class. But mentally, emotionally, and with regards to our capacity to focus on something for a longer period of time, man, longer classes are really valuable. They're really important. It's one of the things actually in my teacher training, in my advanced teacher training, when we have 90-minute classes and more, it's one of the things people have the biggest challenge with because we have so completely normalized 20 minutes here and there. Yeah. You know, and I just have such fond memories. And I don't know that I would have experienced the depth of myself in this practice if throughout my trainings, we didn't have these two-hour classes, these three-hour classes, you know? Well, let's talk We'd about- We'd have four-hour asana workshops. It was four hours of asana. Let's talk about what you have time to do in even a 90-minute versus an hour. You have shavasana. time for a full shavasana. You have time for some some wind-down poses that are, you know- that are more therapeutic, whether it's vibrator, you know, whether it's legs up the wall or shoulder stand, you have time for that and to set up properly. You have time to stop and teach students specific poses or actions for them to work on. And you have time to like show different options of yeah. those those yeah. actions. And that actually the stopping and watching, I never really thought about this until this very moment, but it builds community. Yeah. It does. Because you stop and everybody has to gather around and you're standing next to someone and you you bump into them and you say sorry and you chat a little bit. I mean, it, it really is what makes the class less of a rush in, put your mat down, do a vinyasa practice, leave at Shavasana, rush out. It it just makes it more of a communal experience. Yeah. So I do miss that as well. I'll I'll even say it kind of reflecting on my experience as a teacher of this, because what you're saying I think is is really true and really important. And as a teacher, I feel like one of the things I'm really good at is sticking to the point, getting to the point, and ending class. Like I'm really good at being like, oh, wait, what is the focus of this class? Um, length and strength. Okay, here are 15 different things we're going to do to have length and strength. Oh, what is the nature of this class? Strengthening the back body. Okay, they're a 20-minute or a 30-minute class where we're just going to strengthen the back body. So what I'm really good at is unpacking a topic and getting us there efficiently. But what I don't spend nearly as much time anymore on is the wandering. Mm-hmm. It's the all of the tangential thing and the the kind of tertiary things. And the I, I I feel like a lot of times as a yoga teacher in short format, I feel like I have to make a statement. Mm-hmm. Like class is a statement. But it's it's not always as much of a deep wandering journey together into the body and mind. Less poetry. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a little bit more like, okay, here's this here's this problem. Mm-hmm. Let's solve it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, instead of like, let's get deep into this book and just see where it takes us. Yeah, you that's know? so interesting. So we have another category of things we don't love in our experience, and we're going to have to unpack it. And the whole category is called social media. <laughs> Yes. And I, I want us to be careful because I don't want us to just like incriminate social media and get kind of too cl- cliche about it, right? So we have this kind of unpacked. And I'll say for me, the first thing that I don't really love about social media, for me personally, is I think there's so much bad and unqualified, unsubstantiated, and uncontextualized information. Mm-hmm. Like literally, there's videos about internally rotating the humerus, creating like that internally rotating the humerus and doing a bind is bad for the shoulder because it increases, because it destabilizes the glenohumeral joint. Like, uh, no, Hmm. it does, none of those. You know what I mean? It's like, there's so much, a moment ago, I was just saying like, in shorter format classes, I feel like I need to make a statement. But in social media, boy, do we feel like we need to make a statement. And it's like we're always making these statements like, 
this is good for you. This is bad for you. This is going to hurt you. This is the way to do it. Ujjayi breath is going to injure your lungs. I mean, it's like there's, there's so much out there, but the information, I'm not saying there isn't good information. There's a ton of good information, but there's a lot to have to wade through. And the other thing about it- And it's to really me, hard to know. If so, you don't... Right, so that's, that's, <clears throat> that's, the, that's the, kind of the next part is like, so, so I'm just talking about social media and the information. There's a lot of bad information that is framed in a compelling way. So if you aren't an actual expert, you won't know, right? Like there's a lot of disinformation. And if you aren't an expert, you're not going to know, right? Right? Like I'm not an expert on most things. So if I am not media aware, if I'm trying to learn about COVID or whatever it is, if I'm not media aware, it is so easy to just get really strong and emphatically stated opinions that actually aren't correct. And just like we have that in other subject matters, we have this problem of in yoga. Yeah. There's one more thing about the information part, which is even when there's good information, right? So even if I or many other people, many, many, many people provide good information, it's still kind of random. <laughs> it's still kind of random. It's not a lot of context. There's not context. Because social media doesn't allow it. it doesn't not that really anybody's doing it. anything wrong. No, 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 exactly, exactly, it. exactly, right? So it's so it's more like, let's say someone else. Let's say there's, there's someone else makes five really good, valuable, informative, inspiring, like context-appropriate posts in a week, okay? Those five things are probably going to have nothing to do with each other. So they might be five important things, but they don't hold our attention for very long. And so I I give the example all the time of reading a book out of order. You're going to have all the same paragraphs, same sentences, same concepts, but if you read it out of order, it just doesn't actually leave an imprint. To me, it's the the reason why I I just value small communities and trainings and these things so much because it's not just about the accuracy of the information. It's about the organization, the hierarchy, and the continuity of the information. So. It's just so difficult to wade through some of this stuff. It's really difficult. And it's interesting because I used to really be a proponent of social media. I used to I used to really enjoy it. And I I still do really enjoy being able to to continue to connect with students like Same. people Same. that we've known for a long time and see how they're doing and see the funny videos that Jack makes and you know, see how Brandy's doing and all of these things. But I do think that as humans, we are deluged with far too much short form information these days. And I think our, the next generation of kids are either going to become robots at like, you know, digesting all of this information, or they're going to completely reject it. And we're going to just, they're going to scrap it and we're going to start over because it's really gotten, like you said, it's just constant. It's really hard to discern truth from fact. Everyone's an expert at everything. And so it's hard. And and that's not even taking into account. And I've never done this, but I saw someone once searched on TikTok for yoga and just showed what appeared. And it was all like, you know, very suggestive, like women in very suggestive outfits doing very, very suggestive poses. So we're not even talking about like the just plain old junky right, right, yoga, right, 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 yoga right. information that, that that's out there. That's like a whole other Well, it's not it's not the yoga information, it's the cultural maladaptation of what yoga is. Yeah. Right. It's just like sexualized content that yeah. And like of course in those media, in that in this style of media, that stuff is going to get a high degree of engagement, right? And again, I think towards these lines, it's not like you and I reject social media outright. It's that if we're being honest with us, I don't think there's a listener that doesn't think social media is also a big pain in the butt sometimes. Yeah, right? totally. Um, I think another component of this, you know, one we we just kind of established, which is there's just less established expertise. Mm-hmm. Like everyone knows everything about everything, right? Like you don't go on to social media. I mean, some people go on social media to do the vulnerability post, right? But most of the time, most people are posting in this pose, do this, blah, blah, blah. This is how to do it, right? And 
I just feel like there's very little curation of the content and there's very little ability for consumers to actually understand who is a more reputable source and who actually isn't a more reputable source. Yeah. But another thing is... And as a person posting, you feel forced to give advice constantly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, like, I was kind of saying like this earlier. pushed right? into this position of... We feel like I feel like I need to make a statement, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes I like that. Sometimes I like to make a declarative statement, right? But declarative statements, they can also sort of feed this self-righteous narcissism. Like if I'm always putting myself in the context, like I'm a decently regulated person with most things, not with everything. But if I'm always putting myself in this situation of being the statement maker, I got to make a statement. Here's another statement. People have to like this. I got to do something people like. Here's another Mm -hmm. statement. At some point, just by virtue of doing this, I'm going to believe I am the statement maker. The things that I say and people like are correct and true, and I, therefore I need to make more of them. It becomes this very self-perpetuating cycle that I think is is very difficult for our psyche. It's oh, yeah. difficult for my psyche, mm-hmm. not just being the receiver of social media, but being the being the producer of social media. It it makes me it makes me a little crazy, actually. It's stressful. It's yeah. really stressful. And and just this feeling, I, th- I think, you know, the, what, kind of where I was going to is the feeling that we need to produce content and look good all the time. It's pretty unhappy making. And even like the the other thing is, even if you go through a period where you're not feeling good or not looking good, then you have to do a whole post about that. Like, well, I was going through this thing. It's like, oh my God. Or, or, or you guys, I'm not going to be posting for a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh much. my God. You, okay. If there's, if there's two things I know to be true, you can have COVID without posting about it. Although you posted about it. And then. It's a quick story. I know. And then you can also take a media break without using media to tell everyone you're taking a break. I, I, no one is hanging. No one's like, what's Sally doing today? <laughs> the last thing the last thing I want to say about social media in my little our little social media bitch fest is, and we all know this, right? But I am just so so social media breeds more judgment and divisiveness all around. And this is because, like if you think about it, you say things randomly in a social media comment that you would not say in an email. You say things in an email that you would not say in a phone call. You say things in a phone call that you would not say face-to-face. So we are like four degrees away from civility and humanity when people are, are posting on social media. And so there's just, I just see so much more judgment and divisiveness within the yoga community than I could have ever possibly imagine. And it's not like there wasn't judgment back it's when always we started. Been there. It's always, always been, there. been there. Always been there. But it is fueled by yeah. this platform, you know, by this form of media. And as a person posting, it, it is low-hanging fruit for people to post divisive things. To put like, that's what's going to get the clicks, and that's what's going to get the reaction, and that's what's going to get the engagement, and that's what's going to get you platformed as an expert or an authority if you are complaining about the way other people are doing yoga. And this, I have a beef with this. This is, this is. Yeah, it's become quantified and incentivized. It's like, let's just put our heads down and do our best with our little life that we are given and try to help the people that we can and not bitch about everybody else. That is my, that's what I would, that, that would be my wish. Final one. Let's, let's talk about this one because I, I, I may be saying it wrong. <laughs> this, you corrected me before the podcast and we were laughing about it because like, you know, when you say a word wrong and the person repeats it back to you like three times and you're looking at them like, what? I'm saying the same thing. And they're like, and then you realize you've been saying it wrong your whole life. And this also reminds me of an argument we had years ago on the podcast about you were saying that when someone was making something up as they go along, it was freelancing. Yeah. And 
I said that that is totally not the right expression. I remember. And we like put it out there to people and, and like a third, like maybe a, maybe a quarter of the people thought freelancing was okay and everybody else agreed with me. So what I brought up is that I think that <laughs> yoga has been more and more, you know, is more and more commodified. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm explaining to her it's called commodified. It's not co And I kept saying modified. the co-modification of yoga. No. And he's saying, what are you talking about? It's commodification. Yes. But I must have had a professor or someone because it's like burned in my brain that the word is commodified. It's not. I mean, At that might rate. be a way of saying it, but it's... It, so say that's not if you the, have an opinion... You can post on our social yeah. media about it. But anyway, yes, just, you know, we are at the point of full Western saturation, right? Of well, yoga. it's full, it's not Western. It's, it's not, and it's capitalist. Okay, it's a, capitalist. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's global. Yes. Fair. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Apologies. Fair. Yeah. yeah. So, but yes, a full capitalist where, you know, there's a backbend on every bank billboard and, and, and the thing, you know, aside from it just being annoying that, that, yoga is being used to sell everything. It's also just makes people kind of roll their eyes and feel like disgusted by the idea of doing yoga when they see it being used to advertise every single thing. So that's my beef. I had this really good media studies professor who did not say co-modification. <laughs> um, and, and one of the th concepts that we, that we talked about in this course is that subcultures become the research and development for mainstream capitalist culture. Ooh, right. Yes. And we actually see this a lot. Like there's this countless examples where like the subcultures come up with something that is. Well, genuine. Is genuine. Authentic novel often has a certain style to it, has some novelty to it, has right. some like just je ne sais quoi. Yeah, there's right? passion behind it, right? And and then that becomes commodified, mm -hmm. like that, like those taste cultures, those elements become become brought in, right? And they become kind of repackaged and resold, right? And this is not particularly new with yoga. But obviously, over the last decade or more, there's just been a, a greater and greater and greater acceleration mm -hmm. of it. And and again, I want to say like ah, that doesn't mean that I think yoga should be rebrahmanized. I don't think it should be put back into a traditional context in which you had to be twice born or whatever it is to be given access to these teachings. I love the decentralization of these teachings. I love the accessibility of these teachings. And that's what the modern world has helped facilitate. But also the modern world has also helped facilitate repackaging and reselling it, not as a practice, but as a lifestyle brand. Right, right, right. right? That's what it is. It's, it's, the, it's the packaging of these practices as a lifestyle brand, that, that this practice isn't about self-knowledge, self-inquiry, maybe transcendence, you know, universal teachings. This practice is about feeling good and having a day off. And having the best leggings. And having the best leggings, yeah. right? And it, it's, I think if I'm being pragmatic about it, it just is incumbent upon modern practitioners to be able to wade through the glossy image of the lifestyle brand and see what this practice is in a much deeper and penetrating way. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. it's a way to know the self. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I, because I, I just don't see us having one with the other, the other. You, we just, we don't really get a massive proliferation of something and a massive increase in the availability and accessibility of something without that thing being used to sell things. Yeah. Right? It just, bec it just becomes used to sell things. Yeah. And so just like we have to be 
media aware and sift through these things. We also want to be skillful in our understanding of being able to unpack like the the lifestyle branding and wellness branding and how this practice can actually improve the quality of our lives. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. I think you said it really well. And I won't say the word again because I might say it wrong. So we'll just stop there. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Let us know what you think. I will open comments on the show notes page or you can always hit us up on social media about this episode. Please do share it if you enjoyed it. It always is incredibly helpful when people spread the word. And I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 292. Uh, I will put up there the link to Andrea Jane's book, the link to the podcast I was just on, and links to Jason's upcoming programs. All right, everyone. Until next week, enjoy your Shavasana. Shavasana.